Welcome to Diplomacy, the podcast for communications in mergers and acquisitions, brought to you by Corporate Diplomat. With our guests, we will discuss how the financial, economic, political and social context can actually impact the value created by a transaction. My name is Louis de Schallemer, and I will be your host. Gilles Domenicini, welcome to Diplomacy, the podcast for communications in mergers and acquisitions. Gilles, you're a managing partner with Brightwater, a private equity firm specialized in special situations and distressed investments. It's a great pleasure to have you with us today and to kick off our season three of this show. Gilles, welcome. Thank you very much, Louis. It's a pleasure sharing this moment with you today, and thank you very much for having me. Before we dive into our fundamental topic today, I would like to ask you my very first and, and maybe my favorite question in the show, and that is basically who or what has made the person you are today? Very interesting question indeed. As you mentioned at the beginning, indeed, I'm active in special situation and distressed investments, which is a different set of capabilities, skills, and attributes we need in order to do this job. And my background has always been when I've been dealing with companies, be it family companies in the past or companies for whom I've worked even when I was a student at university, were all companies facing transformational situations being financial stress or distress, repositioning, turnaround. And over the past 20 or 25 years, I've always been involved with such companies. And I really developed a taste for this sort of, I would say, non-linear, more special, difficult, challenging situations. And what has contributed to reinforcing my interest into such situations is basically my appetite for problem solving, my desire to continue learning and developing myself and the varieties that dealing with the situation brings. Food for thought, Gilles. <laughs> and you mentioned that you have been guiding these kind of special situations over a longer period of time. Do you see any changes or evolutions? Do you solve a special situation today the same way than you solved it, say, 10, 20 years ago? What has changed in the way you solve the problem and what has changed in the way you, you look at the context? So first, there has been changes. That's some things that we cannot deny. And, and that's also what makes this segment of the investing space very interesting. There have been changes, and I would like to categorize them on two main pillars. The first one is the sources of difficulties or the sources of the reason for which companies have to adapt and transform themselves. The adoption of technology, starting with the internet a long time ago, but more recently, other developments in the technological space means that companies can become less relevant than they were quicker than before. Change has accelerated and companies can face difficulties much quicker than they were before. Also, we've got some macro elements, and I think that COVID and both the energy price crisis that we've been seeing over the past few years are a recent demonstration of what could happen in terms of uh, things impacting companies into that. And we see that these events are coming more and more frequently and impacting more profoundly and rapidly the way companies are operating and therefore thrown into difficulties that they need to solve facing new challenges and need for transformation. 
So on the one side, in this aspect, things have, have evolved quite quite a lot. On the other hand, in terms of the solution which are available to the companies in order to solve the problems, we have seen a quite dramatic improvement in the tools which are available to companies in order to, to solve the problems. A lot of that has happened on the legal front, and I'm not a lawyer, so I won't start on that, <laughs> but you can think of the pre-pack sales type of instruments, the harmonization and uh, of the insolvency rules in Europe, the fact that you can open a proceedings into a different jurisdiction if you got a good reason for it. All these things help companies restructure themselves and deal with the creditors differently. Also, we have seen a new set of tools in terms of financing to help companies solve their problems. A few decades ago, you had only bank financing, and that was quite limited. Either you could negotiate with your bank or not. Today, you have seen the rise of alternative financing with private lenders, with alternative equity providers, who can help you devise more creative structures around the way you can use tools in order to restructure a company and put it back on the, on the right foot, at least on the, on the financial aspect. That's interesting. Would that mean in a certain way that chances or survival of a distressed situations have improved? So if you take 100 companies in a precarious situation today, are the chances of having them survive greater or not really? I, I, I think it has increased the chances and at least the options as a company is here for doing so. But on the other end, with reflection to what I was saying at the beginning of my answer about the environment and the fact that the environment is changing much quicker than before, you've got a lot more of companies which are thrown into difficulties today. So I would say in absolute numbers, that probably balances out, but the options available to companies are much greater than they were 10 or 15 years ago. For your investments and for your investment strategy, where you say, okay, we want to go into into difficult situation and that's where we really excel. How do you make a strategy on distress or in difficult situations fit with a corporate strategy? Or is that specifically for a private equity who decides that they want to go into specialized situations? Or could that be somebody else? So how does that fit in a in an overall picture? Basically, both private equity and corporate investors can go into this, this strategy. What we are seeing, and, and we are facing as a private equity investor, a lot of competition from some strategic buyers, because very often in heavily distressed situations where you don't have the time to discuss with the banks, where the company is already in insolvency proceedings, and where you need to buy the assets of the company, the trade and assets in order to rebuild it, very often corporates have an advantage over ourselves because they know the market, they've got an existing platform on which they can bolt on the operations, they know the customers, they know the various stakeholders in the industry, and they can much quicker devise a solution that what we do. What we are seeing on the other end is that very often when the thing is a little bit more on, on a slow burn type of restructuring, such corporates don't want to deal with very difficult situations. And that's where basically we can add value, provided we manage to develop an angle into the transaction, if the right people, the right partners and network around us to do that, and develop an investment thesis, a case, which we can basically get comfortable with the fact that we've got a good chance of basically turning around this company or situation, and then sell it to a large corporate 
which doesn't want to take the risk of doing this work. And that's basically where we can plug the gap. But sometimes we receive, and at the moment we are receiving, I would say between five and 10 opportunities a week. A lot of them coming from Germany because Germany is a very energy intensive industry. And as a result of the energy crisis we've seen recently, a lot of companies have fallen into difficulties. And very often we look at these companies which are fundamentally good companies but are facing a cash crash and they need a quick solution and very often corporates are more adequate in order, more appropriate in order to bring in this quick solution because for them is basically bolting these companies, adding them to the current operation very quickly. So when you build the investment case, as you just mentioned, what is critical in building a narrative for such an investment case? Because yes, people do, probably people who talk to you know that you are bringing investment opportunities that do contain a risk level. You're talking to people who are aware that there is a risk level. But what is important when you build this narrative, because somehow you need to look at your situation, there is difficulty, and then you need to give some perspective on a future somehow to, to make it, well, attractive. So Absolutely. how do you build such a narrative? What is critical in such a narrative? <laughs> yeah. First for us is understanding the sources of difficulties and making sure we've got a good grasp of why the company is in this situation, and then getting comfortable with the fact that we can basically overcome these difficulties. And that involves working with the various stakeholders around the company. It involves, of course, the employee. It involves the customers. It involves the suppliers. It involves the creditors of the company. Everybody around who has an interest into that to make sure that we've got the support that they are ready to make the efforts that are needed in order to give the company a chance to survive. So that's the first prerequisite. And once we are confident with that, we are indeed dealing with highly risky situations. And we need to find a way to mitigate these risks. It can be by a negotiating supply agreement, which gives us some flexibility, securing some clients, reorganizing the assets of the company and selling some core assets in order to be able to have a bit more cash and room in our planning and also anticipating what could go wrong and what could we do if things don't go according to plan. And to be frank, they rarely go according to plan one way or the other. And the financial model is very useful. But as I always say, some financial models are useful, all are wrong. We know that it's a tool, it's not a definite answer. And once we've got that, we need to basically develop this narrative to say, this is a situation, this is a solution, these are the risks, and this is all we intend to mitigate them. And as investor, we will need to have a higher margin in our investment to cover for that because our risk of not managing our investment well, or basically our risk of being unlucky with an investment is higher than when you are building, for example, I don't know, a, a fully let central Brussels office building, because the risk profile is different and we need a remuneration of this risk, which is higher than the one your typical investor is looking for. Yes, I think there's still nobody who has managed to crack the nut of having high return with low risk, right? 
We have seen a lot of people with written deeds they had, and in the end, it turned out they didn't, didn't really add. <laughs> yes, I think the high return comes with high risk. That's, Absolutely. That's, and, and some people want to have low risk, and they will have to accept low returns. And uh, we are going for high returns, which comes with high risk. And sometimes it works beautifully well, sometimes less. And that's part of the game. And we need to accept the fact that sometimes we manage to get good returns on investment, and sometimes it doesn't work as well as that. If I summarize three of, of the key learnings that I made so far, so I would say the first one was a very interesting one, which is that you have a very clear plan on how to build the narrative of your investment case, where you look at the sources of the difficulties and then explore the means to mitigate those risks. I think one of the, the key lessons from distressed situations, which is different from your mergers and acquisitions. So I think it is a really very clear definition there. The second one, which I liked very much, was the discussion on the success of a transaction, where you say, basically, we, we look at the shape of the company that we leave after X time when you go. So it's Of course, there is a financial performance. Yes, there is a financial return. Of course, that's why you do your activity. And at the same time, you have a scope where you say the shape of the company when we leave it on its own or when we give it into a new hand is critical. And probably the third most important piece of of lesson that I take with me from our conversation is the very clear and short sentence where you say what you see is what you get. This is really, I think, a master headline for a book that you might want to to write. (laughs) It is so clear because we tend to be wishful in our thinking. We tend to say, and you expressed it in in our cases, that, oh, yeah, it's going to be a right. And we all know that basically it's never going to be a right. So it's very simple. What you see is, is what you get. We want to have a clear view as to where we are heading uh, at the beginning. Otherwise, uh, you can only lose time, money, and sometimes risk your reputation by doing things where you're not 100% convinced that you've got a chance of turning it around. Then I have my last question for you, Gilles. How do you build this 180-day plan? What are the critical two, three components that you build into into your 180-day plan? So every company is different and every situation is different. And that's the beauty of our job. And that's why I love special situations because two days are never the same. And we are, in addition, we are both sector and geography agnostic. We see a variety of, of situations around that. What we will do as a prerequisite is work with people who know the industry and know the market. And we have a network of senior advisors and operating partners who work with us in order to help us develop that. And we will do that together with the management uh, of the company in order to make sure we are, we are all aligned on that. The key aspect in order to basically make sure you can deliver uh, your, your plan is about people. It's about management, it's about the people who work with management, it's about the culture of the company. Is the culture of the company right? Is the culture of the company suited to accept and endorse the change that that is needed in order to make this company survive? So that's one one of the aspects. Then a very brutal question that we need to ask ourselves is, what is the justification of this company in the current market? Why does this company think it has a right to exist? 
Is it still relevant in the current market? Are the product services it is supplying to client still in demand? And if it's not the case, you better take a very clear view on that and do everybody a favor by stating clearly. And then you need to make sure that the environment and all stakeholders are basically supporting the change. And that includes, of course, the employee, which I already mentioned. It includes also the customers, the suppliers, the creditors. Is everybody willing to give the company a chance to survive and transform itself and thrive in the future? That was a beautiful last word, Jules. <laughs> Thank you very Thank much, you. Louis. I really appreciate our conversation. We could still go on. I learned quite a lot. I have taken many notes. This is beautiful. Thank you for joining us today in this podcast. Thank you for your thoughts. Thank you for sharing your experience. We learned a lot. Thank you very much, Louis. It was my pleasure. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Diplomacy. Please explore our website, www.corporate-diplomat.com or our LinkedIn page. I hope you have enjoyed. Feel free to subscribe and hit the follow button. Have a great day.